Well, today we are finishing our study through Psalm 119. Um, next Sunday, as has already been mentioned, we're going to begin a new study on the pastoral letters, which is First and Second Timothy and Titus, uh, letters of Paul. Our focus this morning is the final stanza of Psalm 119, verses 169 to 176. And, of course, as you know, we've talked about this before, each of these stanzas is, is based on a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Well, of course, this one is no exception, but there's more to it than just the stanza that kind of is, uh, is directed to that last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In some sense, this is stanza is almost like a summary. I mean, the same themes that have been focused on throughout the psalm are brought up once again here at the end. For example, a prayer for deliverance in verse 170 reminds us once again that the psalmist is in a hostile environment uh, where he's being persecuted for his faith. The stanza is also in the form of a prayer, just like the rest of the psalm is. He makes actually 10 different petitions to the Lord in this particular stanza. But we'll also see that many of the petitions that he, makes, he makes in this stanza are petitions he's already made in the stanzas before this. And once again, we also see a continued emphasis on the importance of the scriptures. In this stanza, he speaks of the scriptures as being God's word, his statutes, his commandments, his precepts, his laws, and his ordinances. He has used these multiple terms throughout the letter, uh, throughout the, 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 the psalm, to speak of just the fullness of the word of God all through this psalm. But this is more than a summary of what's been said before. It's really more like a doxology. A doxology is defined as a liturgical form of giving praise and glory to God. Well, you can see that from a couple different angles here. One is twice he uses the, uh, the term, O Lord, to address God, which is uh, Yahweh, uh, Jehovah is God's covenant name. But even more than that, we see multiple examples of what are called jussives. That's a part of speech that I had to look up to see exactly what that meant. I'll read you the definition, but then I'll actually try to explain how it shows itself in this stanza. A jussive is defined as something that signals the speaker's command, permission, or agreement that the proposition expressed that he's expressing would be brought about. <laughs> That's a jussive. Well, the psalmist here is, ex is expressing a deep desire of the Lord while also emphasizing his own lack of ability to bring those desires to reality. He says, for example, let my cry come before you. Let my supplication come before you. Let my lips utter praise. Let my tongue sing of your word. Let your hand be ready to help me. Let my soul live. Let your ordinances help me. So the, the psalmist admits of good and godly desires, but he also admits his own great need of being able to bring those desires into reality and fruition on a regular basis. So in the process, he is exalting the Lord as the one who is supreme and the only one who can truly help him. So this last stanza I think we could describe as the psalmist doxology <clears throat> as he closes out the psalm. So let me read for you verses 169 to 176. <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> <clears throat> 
Let my cry come before you, O Lord. <clears throat> Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your word. <clears throat> Let my lips utter praise, for you teach me your statutes. Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live, that it may praise you, and let your ordinances help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Go look at this stanza in three sections. First, in verses 169 to 172, we see the psalmist really modeling for us the need to regularly come to the Lord for understanding, for deliverance, for even a heart of praise. And then secondly, in verses 173 to 175, we see the psalmist also modeling for us the need to regularly come to the Lord for a reviving of our souls. And then finally, verse 176, the psalmist closes out really the whole psalm with an honest confession of his great need and complete dependence on the Lord. So, first main point is this. Believers are encouraged to come repeatedly to the Lord for understanding of the word, deliverance, and a heart of praise that continues to bubble up before the Lord. My guess is that most of you are like me in the fact that many of our prayer requests of the Lord are the same. Uh, we often make the same request over and over. Some of us have probably been praying some of the same things for decades. Um, is that bad? No, not necessarily. It isn't. I mean, there's ongoing concerns, whether it's our own life, whether it's our family, whether it's our church, friends, nation, whatever it might be, ongoing concerns that should be prayed for regularly. But there's also times we need to be open to new areas of concern in our lives that may require a different focus in our prayers. I feel like the psalmist really has done both those things for us in this psalm. First, all the way through, he has regularly asked the Lord for help and valuing and understanding the scriptures. Those prayer requests are some things that we probably should consider adding to our own prayers if we haven't already. Uh, requests like that but secondly we also see in 176 verses here in Psalm 119 that the psalmist prays for the same things over and over and over again you may think well I got it the first time the first time he made that prayer request I got it probably you didn't most of us don't learn that way most of us learn because things are repeated over and over and over again. So there's a reason for that. And there's also a place for repeating our prayers over and over again. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Which you may not realize, but maybe you do. The verb tense that's used there, literally what he's saying is ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. So repeated prayers are an expression of faith. They're an expression of admitting that we need help, that there's things beyond our control, and we regularly need help. 
I've also noticed this, and maybe you have too, that one of the reasons that the Lord may not answer our prayers um, right away is that he wants to work in our hearts in such a way that we learn to pray in a manner that's more consistent with what his will is. God is wiser than we are. His ways are always best, but our desires oftentimes don't match up with what his ways are. And so thankfully, Lord, even through our prayers and circumstances, works in us in such a way to sometimes adjust what those prayers look like to bring them more in line with what his will is and how he plans to answer those prayers. Well, in these opening verses of the last stanza, we find the psalmist praying some of the same things that he's prayed before. Verse 169, he starts off with this. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. So here we're reminded of our next point. Believers should bring their deepest heart cries, deepest heart cries to the Lord, and trust him for biblical insight regarding trials. The word cry in verse 169 can be translated as a ringing cry. It's an urgent request. It's like a lament. And the psalmist has had times of lament all through this psalm. One of the places where where it's especially obvious is back in verses 145 to 147. He says, I cried with all my heart. Answer me, O Lord, and I will observe your statutes. I cried to you, save me, and I shall keep your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I wait for your words. Well, this is an encouragement, those verses as well as this here, It's an encouragement to bring our deepest heart cries, whatever they are, bringing them openly to the Lord. We must never get to the place that we feel like that we are praying or kind of bringing a problem to the Lord is too big to be handled. We should keep on crying out to the Lord with these things, just like the psalmist did. He's modeling that for us. Keep bringing those deep concerns to him. In verse 169, he is praying that his cry for help would come before the Lord. He's asking that his cry would come close to God, in a sense like be catapulted into his very presence. Uh, in, In one sense, it's like him personally presenting his cry for help as an offering to the Lord in a personal manner, that it would come before him. And the second part of the verse tells us what the psalmist was, was asking for in his cry to the Lord. He says, give me understanding according to your word. I don't think, I mean, there's always a prayer for calling for asking for understanding, better understanding of what the scriptures say. I don't think this is a general prayer for understanding. I believe he's asking for biblical and practical insight on how to deal with his own particular real life situation. What's going on with him? What is moving him to cry out to the Lord? Give me understanding according to your word about that. I need help to understand this because I need to know what to do. I need to know how I should respond. What scriptures, I mean, and there's all kinds of things we consider here, but just think of an example of, of a scripture because he says, give me this understanding according to your word. In other words, I just don't want Somebody say, hey, that's an idea. Let's try that. I want to know what is consistent with biblical principles. That's how I want to respond. So as we think about that, 
we might be able to think of some things that would fit in a situation where you're crying out to the Lord because of great difficulty. One of the places that I would probably go to is the book of Job. I mean, Job regularly cried out to the Lord for understanding. He, he dealt with much frustration, confusion, just could not figure out why a righteous man was being judged, treated, treated so harshly. What's going on here? Interesting enough, there was obviously, we know, there was a confrontation between God and Satan at the beginning of the book of Job. And so we know this was a, this was a challenge that Satan was making. This is a response that God was making, and it was all tied in with Job and his family. Even in Job's asking for insight, God doesn't tell him that. He doesn't tell him what happened. What he tells Job is to keep pressing on and trusting God. Trust the fact that God is sovereign and you can trust him. But the reader, which would be us, as we're reading the book of Job, we read that opening part. We know what those first couple of chapters say. And so we can have, we can get understanding ourselves about the own things that call us, cause us to cry out to the Lord for help. And again, we're just reminding us of the fact that God is sovereign. He has good purposes, even in the things that are really painful for us. Reminds us he has good purposes. And so it's important for us when we ask for understanding to realize there are scriptures that can give us some understanding to think about what we're dealing with. And he's asking for that kind of help. So, these scriptures remind us that even in the darkest, most painful trials, our God is good. In fact, he's actively causing all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, we need to be people who are offering up those deep cries to the Lord on a regular basis. Next, we see that believers should humbly petition the Lord for deliverance from their adversaries. Deliverance from their adversaries. The prayer in verse 170 is very similar to the one in verse 169. In 170, he says, let my supplication come before you, deliver me according to your words. Some of the same imagery there, come before you, the same idea, presenting the supplication. I want it to be right in your presence. I want you to hear exactly what I'm praying. So even right here in the first two verses, we see repetition of asking the same thing back to back. He's asking for personal attention. Well, and he's specifically here asking for deliverance. Once again, this is not a new prayer request for him. <clears throat> Several things we can look back to in the rest of the stanza. For example, in verse 132, the psalmist prayed, Turn to me, be gracious to me. In other words, deliver me from what's going on. Um, give me some personal attention. Well, he was, he was doing that here as well. But as far as the deliverance was concerned... Let me give you some other places where he's asking for deliverance. Verse 22, he prayed, take away reproach and contempt from me. In other words, deliver me from those things, from reproach and contempt. Verse 84, when will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? That's asking for deliverance. Verse 121, he prayed, do not leave me to my oppressors. In other words, he's praying for deliverance. So the psalmist regularly asked the Lord to deliver him from the persecution that he was under. But in the midst of those prayers, the psalmist was also praying regularly 
about the Lord sustaining him through it. He's not just saying, make it go away. He's saying, sustain me in the midst of it. And he's praying those kind of prayers as well. And the Lord did that. For example, we saw recently where, what verse was that? I just lost my, uh, um, verse 161. He says, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. So he's being persecuted, which is going to make him very conscious of the words and the things that these people are saying who are out to get him. But he says, my heart stands in awe of your words. That's deliverance in the middle of the situation. He's asking for deliverance in the middle of hard circumstances. So it's right to pray for God's deliverance in hard times. It's also right to acknowledge his deliverance in the middle of those trials. One thing we need to remember, and this is, again, trying to understand these things according to the scriptures. Our God is faithful. The scriptures tell us that we will not be tempted, we will not be tried beyond what we are able. But with the temptation, he will always provide the way of escape so that we may be able to endure it. That's from 1 Corinthians. We know that's true. We've got to understand our trials according to his ordinances, according to his word. So just like the psalmist, there are things that we should pray about often when living in a culture that oftentimes expresses itself in hostile ways toward the Christian faith. Well, the next point moves beyond the need for supplication and focuses on the importance of praise. Another aspect of prayer, verse 171, 172, he says, Let my lips utter praise. For you teach me your statutes, let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. So we see here our next point, that the Lord enables believers to give great praise to him, to give great praise to him for both his personal instruction and his works of providence on their behalf. The psalmist was faithful to boldly bring his supplications to the Lord. He had big problems. He had painful problems. And he needed help. Well, the Lord invites every believer to come to the Lord with prayer in the same way. And then in these verses, he moves to the importance now of praise. That may seem like a strange thing to focus on after he's just cried out about very painful and difficult things that he's dealing with. You probably aren't going to feel like giving a lot of thanks or giving a lot of praise. But actually, it makes perfect sense because when he moves towards praise, After offering up these cries of of supplication, it's an expression of faith. Lord, I know you're hearing my prayer. I know my prayer has been brought before you. I know you have heard what I've said. You know what's going on in my heart. I thank you. I praise you. So he moves. It's an aspect of faith as he goes and begins to focus on prayer. He doesn't know how those prayers are going to be answered as of yet, but he knows the Lord has heard him. And even though he may not exactly feel like uttering praise, he says, let my lips utter praise. Let my tongue sing of your word. He knows the Lord deserves praise. It's right to praise him. And like he said back in verse 171, there he says, uh, in verse 171, he says, let my lips utter praise. He's literally suggesting there, the words used there suggest the bubbling up of a spring. Let my lips be like the bubbling up of a spring that just issue in praise. He knows who God is. He knows he's the sovereign Lord. That's how he addresses him. 
He knows how the Lord has given him strength in the past. He knows that he's in covenant with the triune God, the the sovereign, all-powerful God. He's in covenant with him. He knows very well the value of the inspired word of God. So, of course, his heart should bubble up in praise to the Lord because he has so many things to praise about. He specifically gives praise here because the Lord has personally taught him the statutes of the scriptures. I mean, just what a gift. Not just to have the scriptures, but have the Lord grant you understanding of what they say, to actually teach what they mean. The people in the culture around him have rejected the word of God. They focused on persecution, lies, deception. But praise God, he's not fallen into their traps. He has held firm to the truth of the scriptures, and so his lips utter God's praises. And then that truth is reinforced in verse 172. New American Standard Version that I'm using translates it, let my tongue sing of your word. There are other translations, and depending on which one you're using, it may have it say it in a little bit different way. It can also be translated, let my tongue speak of your word, or let my tongue answer with your word. All those are legitimate translations of that particular Hebrew word. But since he's just spoken of bubbling up with praise in verse 171, it seems that singing those praises as well is kind of what he means to communicate in verse 172. I don't know about you, but for me, it's really very easy. It's, it's, It's very natural to kind of move. If I'm going to begin to praise God for things, it just feels kind of natural to move into singing. Not out loud where everybody can hear, but there are, I mean, there'll be, a lot of us have heard a lot of hymns over our lifetime, and we have all kinds of phrases from those hymns running through our minds. We have all kinds of other uh, scripture songs, psalms that we have, that we have sung for years for many of us. And so it's not that uncommon for a phrase to pop in mind as you're praising God for something. I would encourage you, go ahead and sing it. You can sing it softly, but go ahead and sing it because that's one of the, God has given us music, has given us the ability to sing. One of the reasons is to express that praise. And so I think that's part of what the psalmist is talking about here. Well, here the praises of the psalmist are described in verse 172 as being focused on the fact that all your commandments are righteousness. In one sense, this is a further focus on the steadfastness of the word of God. I mean, it's, it's sure, it's certain. You can depend on it. His commandments take precedence over the things that the culture is emphasizing. But there's also an indication here of something else the psalmist has done at other times in this psalm. He's praising the Lord for his works of righteous providence at all times. His commands, or you could say his decrees, are righteous. What God decrees, what God does, is right. Therefore, I praise him for his works of providence in my life. We talked about this a lot last week, about there's so many ways that God providentially intervenes and just just even the regular details of life that should cause us to give sin, to praise him for that. Well, he's bringing that up again. And like I said, he's done that before. We saw, I guess that we saw it last week. Um, 
there's so many things in life that can feel like it discourages us. We're just not sure what to do. But at the same time, there are also things that we can focus on that will encourage us and remind us that our God truly is in charge. He is working in our lives, even through the most painful adversity. He is still at work in causing those things to come together for good. I mean, that's the kind of thing that should spring up in our prayers on a regular basis. And if you've got a song that kind of goes with it, praise God, use the song too. So we see in this first section, believers are encouraged to come repeatedly, repeatedly to the Lord for understanding, for deliverance, and for a heart of praise to him. Well, our next section, verses 173 and 175, is what we're going to focus on now. Well, in those first three verses, the psalmist recognized his need for the Lord's help. Just the way he ordered his request, let my cry come to you, let my supplication come to you. Let my lips utter praise. Let my tongue sing. Well, in these next verses, he gets more specific about the help he needs from the Lord in his life. So verses 173 to 175. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live that it may praise you and let your ordinances help me. So our second main point is this. Believers are encouraged to come repeatedly to the Lord for help. A deepening understanding of the Lord's salvation and a reviving of soul for God's glory. We should never get tired or feel like we're, we're bothering the Lord by continuing to come to him for help. That glorifies God to constantly come to him for help because it humbles us and exalts him. That's one of the most important aspects of our prayers. Verse 73, 173 is a helpful prayer. He says, let your hand be ready to help me because I've chosen your precepts. So from this verse, we get the next point. Believers trust the Lord to be always ready to give them the help they need to honor him. The image of God's hand used in the Old Testament stands for really a person's strength or a person's power. That's kind of what goes in with the idea of, of using God's hand. Um, in Hebrews 4.16, believers are invited to come to the throne of grace that we might find grace to help in time of need. Grace to help in time of need. What is our time of need? Well, you could say especially trials, but really our time of need is all through the day. I mean, every aspect of our day is a time of need. I mean, there's likely an emphasis here on the idea of trials and being able to endure those trials, but really, I mean, you think about the enemies that are against us to try to keep us from doing what we should. You have Satan, of course. We have sin. We have the world in general. We have our own hearts that are constantly battling those good desires to do the right thing. Well, the psalmist makes this prayer in the context of saying, I have chosen your precepts. In other words, I'm committed to obey you no matter what other people are doing, but I know I'm not strong enough to withstand the trials and temptations on my own, and I know they're going to be there. It's going to be hard when most of the people around me have not chosen your precepts. Instead, they've rejected them. So in that context, 
Let your hand help me. Well, as believers, we know the Lord is always ready to help us. I love the image of, of the God being our shepherd. Shepherds are there to help. He's talked about, there's images that talk about him being strong in our weakness. We are told not to be afraid because the Lord is with us. We didn't know all that's true. This gives us a more, another encouraging picture and even a real practical picture to help us. One thing we need to keep in mind here, God does not have a literal hand. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body like man. But this imagery is given to help us understand. It's kind of a condescension to our own weakness to try to understand a God that is spirit and has no material composition at all. When we see someone who needs help, oftentimes we give, use our hand you know, to help. I thought about this the other day. Um, Kelsey brought our two of our grandkids over, Lincoln and Madison, and we have a swing set swing and slides and everything in the backyard. Well, Madison, who was not quite two, was going up the slide, and they're kind of big steps for somebody who's not quite two years old. So I was using my hand to help make sure she got up the steps and then making sure she was steady at the top. And then, in a sense of kind of overkill probably, I was also holding her hand as she went down to make sure she didn't go down too fast because it's a pretty slick slide and um, she didn't have the kind of coordination that she can stop herself. She's going to land on her bottom right away. So all the way down, holding her hand. If we're willing to do something like that, use our hand to help someone who just needs help going down a slide, walking up a ladder, whatever it might be, do you think our God, who is way better than I am, who is much more compassionate and much more powerful, do you think he's going to use his hand to help? Of course he is. That's what this is telling us. I mean, you've got all kinds. There's things happening in your life all day long where you need a hand to help in a spiritual sense. It could be you're hit with some bad news. It could be you're hit with a hard temptation, one that you've fallen to multiple times. It could be a broken heart. There's any number of things that we can be hit to with, no matter what it is. We, if you're someone who is chosen to follow his precepts, oftentimes you're going to fail. You will fail unless he puts his hand out to help. And he will. Well, verse 174 focuses on another way that the Lord gives us help. It says this, I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. So we learn from this verse that God's salvation, his salvation, is such a glorious thing that believers are always growing in their appreciation for what the Lord has done and will continue to do in their lives. The psalmist says, I long for your salvation. Now, at first, it may seem like the psalmist isn't sure if he has salvation. And I think this salvation, by the way, is talking about spiritual salvation. He has talked about deliverance, and I think that had to do with the more practical circumstances of his life, of the trouble that was around him. This, I don't think, is talking so much about that. I think it's talking more about his right relationship with the Lord, 
having that salvation that only God can give. And once again, you won't be surprised to know this is not a new request. The psalmist prayed about God's salvation back in verse 41, verse 81, verse 155, and verse 166 as well. He's not longing for something he doesn't have. He's longing to understand better the fullness of that salvation, the salvation that comes to undeserving sinners like us and like him. I mean, there is such a beautiful, just unfathomable depth to what God has done and and is doing when he applies salvation. He has accomplished this for people who need it desperately. No one comes anywhere close to be able to save themselves. We are all in desperate need of the salvation that only Jesus Christ can give us. And the more we value and understand that salvation, the more we're helped in living out that salvation. I want to read a prayer for you that I ran across just soon after I was was looking at this verse. This is a prayer that was written prayed by and written by uh, Robert Hawker, a Puritan minister from the 1800s. To me, this is a great example of someone longing. He's a minister. He knows the Lord. But there's a longing here expressed for the Lord in prayer about salvation. And he does it by dealing with each of the members of the Trinity, Father, Father, Spirit, and Son is how the direction he goes. Here it is. Dear and blessed Lord, You are our inheritance and portion forever. Glorious, gracious, and almighty Father, your choice and your gift confirm, sweeten, and sanctify your eternal and unspeakable mercy. So much just in that one sentence. There he's praising the Father for his unspeakable gift, unspeakable mercy. Then he says, Holy and blessed Spirit, you cause my poor soul to live by grace here and in glory to all eternity. And then, great, glorious, universal Lord, to you, blessed Jesus, every knee will bow. You are all in all in creation, in redemption, in providence, in grace and glory. You are all in all in your church and in the hearts of your people. You are in, our, you are in all our joys, our happiness, our work, our privileges. You are the all in all in your word, the ordinances, the means of grace. You're the sum and substance of the whole Bible. He closes the prayer like this, saying, Yes, blessed, blessed Jesus, you are the all in all. Be to me, Lord, the all in all I need in time, and then surely you will be my all in all to eternity. And then he says, Amen. That's an example of a believer longing for the salvation of the Lord and expressing that longing in prayer. And in the process, given help. It's also important to note what the second half of verse 174 says. It tells us what goes hand in hand with longing for God's salvation. He says, and your law is my delight. It's interesting here, of course, he's talking about obedience to the law as tied into his or as an outgrowth of, a consequence of his salvation. But notice he doesn't call it a duty. Notice what he calls it, a delight. Your law 
is a delight. He delights in the word of God. He delights in applying the word of God to his life. He delights in obeying the word of God. Why would he do that? Because he delights in pleasing his Lord and pleasing his Savior. That's what God's work of salvation does in a person's life. Now, there's one more thing in this stanza and this psalm as a whole that the psalmist points out as a way God helps his people. One, uh, verse 175, let my soul live that it may praise you and let your ordinances help me. So from this verse, we see once again that believers must regularly come to the Lord to revive their souls so they can live for his glory, revive their souls to live for his glory. So this prayer for God reviving work is connected to the longing for God's salvation and a delight in his law that we saw in verse 174 because that's the means by which God brings real soul life. A longing for salvation, delight in his word, he uses that to actually bring life, to bring reviving to the soul. And when the psalmist prays, let my soul live, he's asking for God to revive him. And it's the same prayer in substance that he has prayed 11 times in this psalm. He's asking the Lord to renew or stir up the spiritual life that he already has as a child of God. One of the most common prayers in the psalm. Why would that be? Because it's one of the most common needs that we have as Christians. It is so easy to get discouraged, to feel overwhelmed, to feel spiritually worn out, beaten down, defeated, hopeless. It's so easy to feel that way. Well, the psalmist asked that his soul would live, would be revived so that he can praise the Lord. So since the Lord has transformed his life, his heart's desire is to be pleasing to his Lord. He wants praise to the Lord to be a regular part of his life. We saw that last week in verse 164 when he said this. He said, seven times a day I will praise you. He's asking for God's help to be able to continue to give praise and thanksgiving to the Lord all through the day. To that end, the psalmist also says this, and let your ordinances help me. He's asking for a greater comprehension of the word, a greater understanding of the character and perfections of God as revealed in the word. The more clear he is on these truths, the more abundant praise is going to come from his lips. Now, this is just another way for the psalmist that the psalmist is looking for the hand of the Lord to actually help him. He has such a desire to honor the God of his salvation, such a desire to please him with his life. He has such a love for the scriptures. I mean, just a blessing to have your heart changed in that way. But at the same time, he knows he's weak. He knows he's under great pressure because of the hostility, again, of the culture around him. He knows he needs help, and more specifically, he needs help that only God can give him. So as we come to the last verse of this psalm, it's probably a little surprising that this is how he ends. Verse 176, I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. 
Why would someone who has spent this whole psalm, 176 verses, the longest chapter in the Bible, spent this whole psalm talking about his love for the Lord, his commitment to the word of God, and describe himself with someone who's gone astray like a lost sheep? Because he knows how deceptive his heart can be. It's an extremely important lesson for us. So our last point is this. Believers are encouraged to regularly confess their sins before the Lord and trust that he will seek after his servant. There's something in each of us that feels like we have to keep up an image in front of everybody. We're afraid of what people will think if they know how much we struggle in certain areas. We're afraid what people will think if they know how inconsistent we are in our walk with the Lord at times. O.T. Alice makes this observation about what we read in that last verse on your outline. He says this. He says, verse 176 shows us how deeply conscious the writer was of the perfection of the law and his own inability to fulfill its demands on his own strength. Only God, the giver of the law, can enable his servant to keep it. We thank the Lord that he's always working in our lives. He is. We, thank, we can be thankful for the growth that we have seen in our lives in various ways. We can thank him for the salvation that we have in Christ. And part of our longing for that salvation is appreciating the fact that in Christ we have a great high priest, a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he's been tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So as we draw near to his throne, we always find grace to help in time of need. We can and should regularly confess our sins to him, knowing that he will receive us in Christ. God's law shows us how much help we need. We never reach the perfection required in God's law in our own actions because our righteousness is in Christ. That's how we're received. And we need his constant help to obey. Even when we go astray, we are trusting the Lord to come after us. And since we are his servants, we know that he will seek after us, which is amazing to think about to think about the triune God seeking after his servants. But that's because we're his. I am your God. You are my people. He is our God. We are his people. There is a covenant connection there. And it's with his help that we will not forget his commandments. We will put them aside. We won't put them aside like they don't matter. We'll instead seek to understand them, to apply them in our life with his hand on us, ready to help as we live as his servants in a difficult culture. Lord, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the example of your servant, the psalmist who wrote this. I thank you for the example of how to pray, the examples of how to really, truly love and, and just appreciate and apply the scriptures. Every one of us need that, need to grow in our own ability to do that. I just thank you so much for his example of being honest about weakness, about sin, about needing help. Lord, I just want to thank you for that example. Lord, I ask for each of us here that you would cause us, revive in us that work, if, if we're Christians, that desire to want to please you with our life. 
If we're starting to wane in that, help us to confess that to you as sin. I don't want to please you as much as I used to at other times in my life. Confess that. But thank him for the fact that there is a desire there and trust him for the help to see you through as decisions have to be made this afternoon, tomorrow, throughout the week, the rest of whatever your life entails. Lord, I thank you that you are with us. I thank you that you are the God who helps us. We thank you so much for the salvation that is ours in Christ. What an amazing salvation that is. Help us to have a longing to have a deeper appreciation of what you've done for us in Christ. If you've never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am sinful. I haven't measured up to what you required of me. But I thank you that Jesus Christ came for sinners like me. He came for sinners like me. He's not asking me to be good enough. He's asked me to be honest, to admit who I am and what I need. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize I'm a sinner, but I thank you for Christ. And I want to receive him as my Savior, commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note on your tear-off in the bulletin or... Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in Christ's name we pray.